All right, folks, welcome to the podcast. I'm here in Rockport with Dr. Mark Fisher. Mark, thanks for joining the podcast this morning. Good to be here. Appreciate you opening up your office to let us do this. Give us a quick introduction to yourself. Well, who you, who you are, where you, you know, what was your path to, to your position as science director of Coastal Fisheries? Well, I've been science director for 15 years here in Rockport, and before that, I was at headquarters for 10 years as a, as a data analyst. I uh, got a job at Parks and Wildlife right out of uh, Texas A&M. I, uh, actually, I started just before I, I actually graduated, so I had the had the pleasure of uh, finishing a dissertation and holding a full-time job at the same time, which I, I don't recommend to anyone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've been here 15 years, actually coming up on 16. I've just, every day is a different day. It's it's very enjoyable. So 26 in total? You're 25. 25, okay. Coming up on 26 then. And so you've been in this position as, as science director. What is... What is the science group? Explain how the science group fits within within coastal fisheries, because I don't think a lot of people know that. Well, we provide scientific and technical support to the coastal fisheries division. Uh, we oversee the uh, commercial landings, recreational landings through the creel survey, our uh, fishery independent monitoring, that's our gillnet survey, our trawls, bag sands, and uh, oyster dredges. And we also have... Uh, uh, life history investigations like temperature tolerance, agent growth, and we have a uh, small genetics work group also. And so you, you've got staff scattered up and down the coast, oh, or yeah. mostly centralized here in Rockport? Mostly centralized, but we've got some in Corpus, and we have another lab in Palacios. That's where our genetics and uh, life history work gets done. Okay. Give us a quick 30,000-foot view of of. of of our coastal of our coastal fisheries just in general how are we sitting with the stocks of our our popular game fish we're in great shape we're in outstanding shape uh sea trout and uh our spotted sea trout and red drum of course the top two species both in and uh, species sought and number landed and we're just uh, we're doing very well there's a lot of trout a lot of reds in the water anglers are are happy you get to sense it in any part of the coast where some anglers are saying, hey, there's too many, uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. particularly with redfish? Yes, yes. You were here that one. Yeah, there's too many redfish. There's too many red snapper. Uh, you've got to stop and think about the meaning of, the, of, of anglers saying there's too many fish in the water. They didn't say that back in the 80s yeah. or the 90s. We hear that quite often, especially uh, I, hear it a, I used to hear it a lot in Sabine Lake. Too many redfish. Too, too many, many redfish. redfish. Stop. Oh, Stop. Oh, this is crazy. This Why are y'all putting redfish in the water? <laughs> <laughs> Do you like to catch redfish? <laughs> yeah. Well, shut up. <laughs> uh, so we're doing good. I mean, we're doing great. All indicators point to a healthy fishery. Yeah. Okay. Now, you know the the we coastal fishery started with regional management that kind of philosophy 10 15 years ago yeah that's right roughly i don't know the exact date but you know i guess i'm I'm referring to uh, the lower coast moving to um five fish for for speckled sea trout and um you know that has moved up the coast and it's gotten as far as all the way to sergeant have you i have heard i've talked to a, a guide not long ago i guess last 
last summer, and there was a lot of support for um, moving that five fish limit up up the coast. But the data is not really there to support it. But you have a lot of of anglers, regular recreational anglers, and now a lot of fishing guides that do want to see a movement to five fish. Just I think because they want a uh, more of a trophy trout fishery they want to see larger fish they're catching a lot of small ones but they want to see a lot of a lot of larger fish so how do you kind of balance that dynamic between okay we we don't have the biological means or or support to move to lowering the limit but you have this sort of angler pressure to want to do it is that outside of the realm of of the science group because you know you're just collecting the data and presenting it saying here's Here's what the numbers tell us. I mean, do you guys deal with, I guess, more of the political aspects of managing? Well, of course, that's that's what our public hearing process is for, to get input from anglers on whether they do or do not wish to go along with something. And the last time we did this, Upper Coast, from Galveston, Sabine, overall, they were not uh, in favor of going to 10 fish at that time. And I, th- I, and I think that that's, I think that's shifting and um i've had guys come up to us to me and ask how do we let parks and wildlife know this and i'm telling well you have to go to the commission meetings there's a commission meeting once every year where you can go and talk about anything and everything you have to attend those meetings and let your voices be heard and i think that's where um a lot of times where just the noise gets filtered out because no one wants to go that extra step to speak what's on their what's on their mind people a lot of people complain about things but when you have these hearings up and down the coast and you only have 20 or 30 people show up um i think it's just there's yeah. a disconnect there. and and hurricane harvey put a damper on this the last meeting in, in uh, august unfortunately yes and that's a good segue so let's just jump into harvey then okay um how did you guys fare at the lab here uh this lab was completely unscratched we got a little bit of water blown in under the front door, but that, that happens sometimes during some, some tough thunderstorms, so it's not unusual. Of course, the aquarium next door uh, completely collapsed upon itself. It, it, it cratered, and it's already been bulldozed and hauled away. It's just a blank slab now. But otherwise, this, this, uh, this place is built like a, well, it's built like a brick marine lab. It, I mean, it's, uh, this thing is a fortress. Well, it was built in the 30s? 1947. 47. So it's yeah, seen it is. several it's hurricanes. Yeah. Stout. It is stout. Tested and proven for sure. Yeah. And um, but obviously you had you guys were impacted um, on a personal level. Personal level. Yeah, we had um, several staff who lost their homes. Uh, some are some are damaged, varying degrees of damage. Others have moved back in and they're they're back to normal. We got others who are still waiting on uh, insurance adjusters and contractors. Just driving through town. Um, I mean, you see improvements every time I come through here. It's oh, yeah. a little bit better every oh, it's single a time. A lot so. better. You should have been here in September. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, we're much better. A lot, a lot of the debris has been hauled away, and some of the the really damaged structures have already been bulldozed and and uh, and cleared. So yeah, it looks a lot better than it used to. As a as a guy that lives here, are you uh, are you ready for? I guess it'll be interesting to see what the summer crowds are like this year because you don't have as much um, hotel occupancy. And hotels are still closed. Hotels are still closed. So unless someone's renting a home that's 
rebuilt damaged, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or not damaged um as a guy that lives here you might be kind of interested you might be able to enjoy your summer a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah it could be it could be um all right so harvey harvey made an impact on a lot of people on a um on a personal level affected their property but how did it how did it affect our fishery are y'all seeing any data that's coming back um that that's showing any trends you know we Copano Bay, Aransas Bay, you had a flush of those bay systems. Have y'all seen anything in increased recruitments with your cyanates, with red drum? Anything changing with blue crabs for those bay systems? Um, Actually, we didn't really get that much rain here in the Rockport area. I think the total was five inches or so, and we've gotten just routine showers that were bigger than that. Well, just the, I just think of the surge that came through. We didn't really like, get that much. Oh, you didn't? Uh-uh. No, the water didn't Coconut. even come over the the, uh, no, the folks along Port Bay who lived there. They got water in their homes. Okay, and okay. That's from the surge, from that, that fierce north wind that came through first. Uh, but here in town, I don't believe the water came over our bulkhead. Or if it did, it just barely, bar- barely so. Because the lab is right here on the water, and we were we were untouched. Well, are we see, are we seeing anything anywhere along the coast where um, you could say, oh, that's that's interesting. I wonder if the hurricane had anything to do with that. Uh, there's some seagrass beds in Redfish Bay that look like they have been mowed. Uh, there's some uh, bare rhizomes, and just from the location and the water depth, it appears that that water was completely blown out, and the seagrasses were exposed for I, I don't know how many hours, but they're exposed to the 100-plus mile-an-hour winds, and they just got their tops sheared. sheared off. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing to see some of the pictures of barges just moved up onto San Jose Island, and just the the, the power of that storm is um, just unbelievable. I guess we won't see any impacts from the storm until next spring, meaning that you guys are just now collecting data, starting to collect your spring data. Is that correct? Your gillnet surveys. Actually, we did. Our, actually, we did we had gill nets in the water within two weeks after the storm. Oh, you did? Yeah, we, we were able to, you were able to get our, back out. We were able to complete our fall our fall surveys. That's awesome. I didn't know and that. Those results actually showed a slight increase in uh, trout and reds after the storm. And that's it. There's a lot of things that go into number of fish, but one of the uh, impacts of Harvey is it kept a lot of people off the water for a variety of reasons because yeah. there, you know, there was no power, no fuel, no ice, no bait. And, of course, people here had other uh, higher priority things to do. Mm-hmm. But it kept a lot of people off the water for, for quite a while. Uh, that means there was more fish left in the water as a result. Yeah. And I guess you guys still try to carry on krill surveys and everything else oh, yeah. like you yeah, normally we, do? We, uh, we had to cancel some right after the storm just because uh, uh, ramps were blocked by debris or otherwise closed. There was, there was one, uh, Port Aransas Pollock was actually commandeered by uh, emergency responders and there was no fishing or was no launching allowed at the time but we're pretty much back online and met probably less pressure this summer as well you know you probably will see a little bit less than than normal if you don't get all the crowds you normally get yeah well, that just remains to be seen how quickly how quickly things get back to normal yeah okay so from a hurricane to a a 
series of freezes. A series of freezes. Along the coast. <laughs> Let's talk about this cold weather we've had. And first of all, have we seen any impacts from those freezes? Any fish kills on non-game uh, fishes? Or not non-game, but... Just any fish. Just any fish in uh, general. They're, they're very, very small and isolated locations. Uh, of course, Pringle Lake and the San Antonio system, that one always, uh, almost always has a fish kill from, from freeze just because the fish, it's big, shallow, holds a lot of fish, and it gets cut off when the, when the tides drop up. So they're, they're There's no there. refuge. There's there. no refuge there. We, uh, there was another kill of reds on uh, Lake Como on Galveston Island, uh, about 50 reds between 18 and 30 inches. Uh, it was a, a similar deal. They got there's nowhere to caught go in there, there, and they yeah. got when the tide dropped out, they got trapped in there, and it just got too cold for them. But otherwise, it's pretty much isolated to mullet and ladyfish, and of course snook on the lower coast uh, in the in some of the canals around Corpus. How close do you think we were to? I mean, we were probably right on the cusp, I assume. If we had another, if the event had lasted another day at those temperatures, I suspect we would have seen much larger fish kills. Are there any advantages to uh, to a cold freeze? Because, you know, in a freshwater scenario, you can kill off some invasives, some water hyacinth, and some giant sylvania. But in our, in our coastal waters, do, do you see any advantages to these events where species are pushed to the the brinks of their limitations, but it's going to have some effect on some things that may be hurting our fishery, whether it be, you know, lionfish. Maybe lionfish have to retreat to deeper waters. Maybe it kills lionfish. I don't know. I guess that's why I'm asking. Do you know of any advantages to these cold weather events to where we're not losing our population of our sports fishes, but it's knocking back these other things that may be affecting our fishery? Well, uh, one of the... One of the interesting impacts from the 83 and the 89 freeze, which were just completely devastating, millions and millions and millions of fish were killed. But the very following spring, uh, the recruitment was off the charts. And that's because there was no competition. There was almost no predation. All the juveniles were just allowed to grow up and, and eat and, and uh, without without any real competition from the uh, larger fish or very little predation. And also, people didn't go fishing for, for a couple of years after those freezes, and the fishing pressure was greatly reduced, which also contributed to these fish being able to, you know. to grow up and, and, uh, and reach a larger size. That uh, the, the former state record sea trout that was caught in Baffin in 96, uh, that angler gave us... Th- the otolus, the ear bones from that fish, and that fish was spawned in 1990. So it was a post-freeze fish, and it had those advantages while it was while it was uh, developing and growing uh, during the early 90s when there was you know reduced fishing, reduced predation, and reduced competition, and that fish turned into a, a trophy fish. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. that's neat. I never thought about. I didn't. I, I didn't know that that the, that that had happened with the recruitment of those larval fishes. But it certainly a, it's makes the, sense. It's the it's the forest fire effect. It's the same thing. Everything gets completely wiped out. But there's lots of nutrients in the water. There's no competition. Everything is just can grow as fast as it can. 
Just like a, just like a forest after it's burned to the ground, and mm-hmm. the, the the growth that follows the next spring is it's off the charts, and that's what we saw. So it's not a doomsday event when you. It's it, not, because it, a lot of people worry about that. It's when, not a doomsday event. It's it's uh it's tough times for a couple of years afterwards, but it the the resource rebounds quickly. Well, there we go. Everyone gets really up, you know, worried and and upset about. You know, why aren't we doing this, this, or why aren't we, you know, why don't we take extra measures uh, during these events? But, um, you know, like, I think there's only so much the state can do when you when you have these events, and you just have to hope and pray that things will work out, and, and typically Mother Nature will find a way. I, that's what has always happened in the past. Yeah. We've seen, uh, we've seen quite a few freezes in these past, past 25, 30 years. And uh, always come out in the end better off. We've had a long stretch without a significant kill, and I guess it's only going to be a matter of time before we do. Have- yeah, the last one was last big one was uh, December of '89. We've had some smaller and localized kills since then, but that's all they've been. Before the '83 one was, do you know when the one? There was some in the. Uh, there was a small one in like '77, '76. There was some in the '50s. The worst one was uh, winter of, I believe that was 1899, and the reports were, was that Galveston Bay completely froze over. Uh, people could go from Houston to the island uh, on horse-drawn carriages across the bay. Wow. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think we're due for another one. <laughs> I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> how are How are blue crabs doing i i know that that was something that used to always come up when i was with the department is that fishery okay is is that something that you guys are always always looking at yeah yeah they've been in decline for for uh, a number of years and yeah it's something we're, we're actively looking into when we got all the rain these past few years uh, i think that that helped it does, uh, it does locally help. here yeah. in this area yeah, when it's too salty, you get very poor uh, hatching success. They they uh, don't do well in these hypersaline waters. So we're lowered salinity. Of course, they can also, on the other hand, can also be too fresh for mm-hmm. them for good hatching. But that's why the females migrate to the mouths of the bays out to to as optimum salinity as they can find. They won't spawn in the upper parts of the bays. They always go to the mouths. They're a fascinating species. You know, what, what kind of tools do you have available to, you know, with that fishery? There's not a whole lot that you can do besides looking at changing um, some of those regulations. I mean, you're looking, are you looking at it on a habitat level, um, looking at it on a legislative level with the freshwater inflows? I mean, how do you manage that particular fishery? Well, that that's one of our commercial fisheries that uh, it's under a limited entry and licensed buyback program where new participants can't come into the fishery unless they purchase an existing a license off of someone else. Of course, that removes that person out of the fishery so the new one can come in. So yeah. we're not issuing new licenses for the fishery. And we're actively buying licenses back. We, uh, we, we purchase them back from the commercial, from the commercial fisher, and then we retire that license. It's, it's, it's out and we have reduced uh, those who have remained in the fishery uh they're doing all right they're making a living 
but they're 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 in uh, reduced numbers. Their landings are staying relatively stable. Then they've been a little stable. They've been declining just because the number of uh, number of traps in the water has been going down. Well, speaking of traps, we got a um, it's coming up crab trap cleanup. Yeah, coming up the big. I guess the big weekend's the seventeenth. I think February seventeenth is the main weekend, but it runs all the way to the twenty fourth, I believe. It's two weekends, yeah. Yeah, sixteenth through the twenty fourth. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that first Saturday is the big hoorah, the big push, and I know the Parks and Wildlife will be releasing the locations at the beginning of February on where people can drop off the traps. Right. Yeah. And I heard it's very important to tell them to crush the traps so that it, they don't get. Picked up out of the dumpsters and reused down, <laughs> down the line. <laughs> so, I didn't mean to put you in a box on the on the blue crab question. I just there, there's not a lot of participants in the fishery, to my knowledge. No, and and it's just something that you know that, that population levels seem to be trending downwards. So I'm just like, what what else is there pe- that that people can do to um, to help reverse that trend? So if people need to you know, on a grassroots level, do something that would be good for, for them to participate in. I don't know what that is, what the answer is. So, well, is there anything that you wanted to bring? Oh, I had one more question. Southern flounder. Oh, okay. That's another one. That's a, a tricky one. It is tricky. It's, it's really heavily influenced by the environment and, um, how are recruitment levels looking as of, as of late? Well, of course, uh, you, you know, all too well, uh, how temperature, intolerant the uh, the eggs and larvae are they, they have a very narrow window of, of temperature where they'll they'll survive where the eggs will hatch and larvae will survive it's extremely narrow it's between 16 and 20 degrees centigrade if it's above that you will get very poor hatching success and if it's colder than 16 uh, you'll have very poor you even zero hatching success now the, the previous two years uh, 2016 2017 we had unusually warm winters when the larvae are coming in, and those two years are set two record low years for recruitment for flounder, two in a year. And when you've only got four age classes in the population, and you have two record, two of them are going to be record low. It's it's not looking, not looking too rosy for them. However, this of course this uh, this current winter we're in is is much colder. Uh, we're hoping we'll get a big boost in uh, flounder recruitment. We'll know. We'll know in the next few months when the juveniles start coming into the bays, yeah. see how well they did. That's a that's another good point that you know it's unfortunate that you only you have only so few year classes in the base system at one time, but just because you have a poor recruitment one year maybe even consecutive years, this twenty eighteen recruitment, if it does come up, hopefully it does, it can make up for I don't want to say make up, but it if it shows signs of improvement it, we can say, Okay, Let's watch it a little bit longer. Maybe next year we'll have another cold winter and we'll, recruitment will keep trending up. I mean, we don't – one thing that I think the coastal fishery does well is, is knee-jerk reactions. That You don't do that because you have trends. You have many years of data that you can look at to make to help make your decisions. And um, you're always really good about making sure you have a good data set to help support support those decisions. And hopefully with flounder we can see another – Maybe not as cold next year, but cold enough. Yeah, 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 a little cooler, but maybe not as cold. I would prefer that. Um, colder winters uh, are better for flounder, though, that's for sure. So, 
so that data will be coming in this spring and then you guys will look at it and kind of mull it over yeah and, well and, yeah we see and, we see the juvenile flounder in our bag saints from january through march and we'll know by the end of march whether or not it was a good good recruiting year or not on the adult side of things though population levels are yeah they we still have plenty yeah, we, have, of course, we, we had, remember we had those uh, we had those cold winters i forgot the uh, the year we had several cold winters back there 2011 2014 or so which resulted in very large uh age classes and it did show up in the population that's that's right i remember right after the limits went into effect yeah, i know right after we right spent after, the limits and it, it got it, cold it, again it got and cold it, and yeah, it, we took credit for that one yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that worked out very nicely yeah that was perfect yeah couldn't have asked for anything better yeah <laughs> well let's hope that happens again you know we can still keep eating our flounder because that's that's probably one of the better tasting fish well, Mark, do you want to use this opportunity? Do you have anything you wanted to, any other news to bring up? Anything happening in coastal fisheries or uh, Well, just Rockport follow area? up on the freeze. Uh, let's see. Uh, some things that we'll, we will see impacted. Uh, gray snapper, they really don't like water b- below about 50 degrees. So, yeah, this the, we anglers won't see any gray snapper in the water for. They call them mangrove. Yeah, mangrove, gray yeah. snapper, it's all the same. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, snook, snook took a big hit, and uh, that was that's uh that's unfortunate because we had we've been seeing unusually uh, large numbers of them recently just before the freeze so yeah that that's uh that one's a little painful and a one, few a few tarpon too. that's what i was actually, gonna say in caney creek a guy in the yeah, office told me that yeah they saw there were some in caney creek there were uh, there was a uh, tarpon floating here in the rockport harbor just uh, just under my window after that after the uh that was after the uh new year's freeze were the snook more concentrated here in the midcoast or did y'all see some hits down, down in the uh, Port Mansfield? Well, the there. biggest hits we saw were in the the canals in the Corpus Christi area. Well, it'll take just a few more warm winters, and they'll start. They'll come back come up back again. Up, the up same thing way. as gray snapper. Yeah, or mangroves. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this for us again, folks. This was uh, Dr. Mark Fisher with Parks and Wildlife Science Group within Coastal Fisheries. Mark, thank you. All right, thanks. Thanks for letting me participate.